Now we have the opportunity to turn to God's holy word. And I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 14. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Hopefully it's the same or similar to the one you have. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 14. The text will be the last v- verse of this chapter, verse 21. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Before we hear God's holy word proclaimed, let us gather again our hearts and pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful for your extraordinary grace in Jesus Christ. We pray that you will illuminate our hearts through your Holy Spirit's power, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, that Christ in his glory might be displayed before us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'll read our text once again from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In a conversation about a year ago with a relative, a startling and concerning remark was made by this individual. An individual who grew up in a reformed setting in Ontario his whole life. And this was the remark he made. I do not see any evidence for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in Scripture. And I had to sit back and let the comments sink in. I do not see any evidence for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in Scripture. Denying the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ is not new. In the early church, British theologian Pelagius declared his belief that Jesus' death on the cross merely set a good example for Christians an example that we ought to follow in order to gain heaven. Well, much more recently, the atoning death on the cross has been brazenly attacked 
being called cosmic child abuse by some. Steve Chalk, for example, in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, says that penal substitutionary atonement involves, quote, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love, end quote. The phrase cosmic child abuse is among many things entirely blasphemous, and yet perhaps some questions must be asked based on Chalk's statement. Is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement a huge barrier to faith, as he claims? And is it in contradiction to the love of God? And the issue is part of a larger question, namely, how does God in his word, as that is our rule for faith and life, and it is the truth, how does God in his word declare the means by which he reconciles his people to himself? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 the Apostle Paul beautifully explains how God reconciles his people to himself. A reconciliation which involves the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus, as well as the justifying work of God. And these, the form of two, these form two areas of examination in the sermon. First, reconciliation accomplished through imputed sin— And second, reconciliation applied through imputed righteousness. And so we begin then with reconciliation accomplished through imputed sin. In the first half of our verse, we read, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Well, to help us understand what the Apostle Paul wrote here, we need to step back and look at the context of verse 21 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains his apostolic ministry, both its content and the trials he experienced. Perhaps we'll recall that he's being criticized as not being a legitimate apostle and his ministry is being put into question. Well, in chapter 5, Paul discusses looking forward to the coming resurrection in faith in anticipating the final judgment. And in the last half of the chapter, Paul ends with a wonderful declaration of God's work reconciling his people to himself through Jesus Christ. In verse 21, the apostle caps off this final section on reconciliation explaining how God accomplishes and applies this work of reconciliation for his people. And he begins with imputed sin. The first portion of this verse reads, For he made him who knew no sin. Well, who are the ones being referred to here? The answer is found in reading verse 20 and 21 together. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
for he made him who knew no sin, etc. And so we see that God, that is God the Father, doing the work of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, his Son. And so using the natural flow of the text, in verse 21, we can substitute the pronouns with their antecedents. For God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And so here we find the means by which God reconciles his people to himself clearly stated. He made, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And this is an extraordinary statement. It has a number of important aspects to it. First, Jesus Christ is described as the one who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect in his life on earth. He is said to be entirely unacquainted with sin, personally. He was blameless, perfect, holy, and righteous in every way. And there are many verses that declare the perfections of Jesus. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 9, a prophecy about Jesus 700 years before he came. We read there, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Hebrews 7, verse 26, declares of of our Christ, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Since Adam's fallen to sin, no man like Jesus had ever walked the earth. God declared of Jesus, we'll recall, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And only a few verses before in our text, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Jesus is said to be the judge of everyone who, who will, everyone will stand before. And so not only is Christ perfect and incapable of sin, but Jesus Christ is the judge of what is right and wrong. And yet we read in our text, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Notice that Jesus did not become a sinner in the sense that he personally committed sins. Jesus remained and always will remain righteous, holy and pure, and was so during all his days while on earth. Rather, here we have a declaration that Jesus Christ was reckoned to be a sinner. Another way to say this is that sin was imputed to Jesus. We read earlier in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Well, how? It goes on to say, by not imputing their trespasses to them. God did not impute their trespasses to them, but in our text we read that their sins were imputed to Jesus Christ instead. Now, I mentioned earlier that for 13 years I served as a police officer up in Ontario, Canada. And during my policing career, I witnessed and was privy to many sinful acts, including, but not limited to, the following. 
adultery, fornication, drug use and drug dealing, pornography, homosexuality and lesbianism, drunkenness, suicide, spiritual darkness, including the practice of Wicca, astrology, Islam and atheism, anger, violence and hate, Sabbath breaking and countless incidents of blasphemy and many other sinful things. Yet the sins that I have made a list of here were not from members of the community that I interacted with. They were committed by fellow police officers during my time in the service. And police are supposed to be the cream of the crop in our society, aren't they? And I did not serve in a notably bad police service. The Wadler Regional Police is a a respected police service in the country. Now, if I told you about my experience and knowledge of the community in which I served, I would add to this murder, child pornography, bestiality, and many, many other dark and morally sinful things. Dear friends, men and women are sinners terrible sinners. The best of men commit works of iniquity and evil in thought, word, and deed. And you and I, dear friends, are no different outside the grace of God than these police officers or anyone else in society. We also are sinners. We've confessed it together, haven't we, earlier in the service? In fact, we commit these same sins and have such evil things roll around in our minds, don't we? And so we must never think that we're beyond these various sins discovered in others. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Paul writes words that must be lived by. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And when compared to our holy God, When compared to his holy and undefiled son, Jesus Christ, we see our utter sinfulness. Perhaps we recall in Luke 5 verse 8 that Peter, when confronted with the holiness of Jesus, perhaps you'll recall that they had been fishing all night and caught nothing. And Jesus said, cast the net on the other side of the boat. And they did so. And their net was so full of fish. When Peter realized who it was. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, confronted with the holiness of Jesus Christ. In the presence of one who is truly holy, truly righteous, Peter became entirely aware of his sinfulness, of his moral filthiness. Dear friend, do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you acknowledge that what Scripture says about us all as being applicable to you as well? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? You see, this is a vital thing to understand. Because without this understanding of ourselves, we will never seek salvation in Jesus Christ. A salvation that all desperately need. I was listening to a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon on the way here, and he said man's problem, he said modern man in the 1960s. Well, I don't think it's any different. He said modern man's problem is they think they're all good. 
And they don't need Jesus. They don't need a Savior. Oh, dear friends, let us never have such a thought. It is sins like I have described above that were imputed to Jesus Christ in order that they would be atoned for. We have here a clear description then of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And here John the Baptist's declaration of Jesus being the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Well, that comes into focus, doesn't it? It was Jesus' atoning sacrifice that was the means by which God reconciled the world, the fallen world, the morally filthy world to himself. For an atoning sacrifice to be acceptable, the one offered had to be perfect. And Jesus, the perfect one, was a suitable substitute for his people, taking their sins upon himself. The 19th century Scottish Presbyterian theologian William Symington notes that the Hebrew verb for atonement means to cover. And he states further that atonement means to signify, to forgive, to expiate, to propitiate. That is, to cover an offense from the eye of offended justice by means of an adequate compensation. And the term expiate means to make amends for something or to pay off a debt to annul guilt. Propitiate means to appease or turn away wrath. And in God making Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, he covered sin from his sight. He covered our sin from his sight. Well, what was this adequate compensation that satisfied God's holy and just judgment. Well, Jesus, having our sin imputed to him, you see, was a legal transaction. This is legal language. And picture then a courtroom setting where God is the judge, he is the one sinned against, and his perfect moral law being the standard which all people have disobeyed, reflecting their obligations to obey the covenant of works. And in the same courtroom... Jesus Christ, who is actually perfectly righteous, obeying every aspect of that covenant, who never sinned and who who perfectly kept the covenant obligations that God entered into with mankind at creation, well, he is legally declared the sin bearer. It's he who is declared guilty. God's people, on the other hand, are also present in this courtroom, and they are sinners. They are standing in another part of the courtroom, helpless, guilty, shamed, having breached God's covenant obligations. But despite their sin, they're legally declared not guilty because their sin has not been imputed to them. Oh, dear friends, this is most extraordinary. Having looked at our hearts, having heard now that our sins are not imputed to us, But to this perfect one, oh, this is a mercy reflecting a new covenant reality. A covenant of grace where God provides atonement for his fallen people in his own son, Jesus Christ. Well, in this courtroom, 
the verdict of guilt has been rendered. And what is the sentence? The sentence is what the sin deserves because the judge is righteous and holy. The sentence is death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus was put to death because of the imputed sins of others who deserved God's holy wrath. Jesus being made sin for us meant that he suffered the punishment that was necessary, which is what we read in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus made a complete and perfect atonement for his people, thereby satisfying the just wrath of God. Oh, what wonder and grace, dear friends! The hard reality of our sin has become joy in Christ, has it not? What relief, what grace. What's the motive that Paul declares for this extraordinary atonement? In verse 14, the love of Christ. Some declare that this doctrine is contrary to the phrase God is love. Well, how opposite it is. God is love, and this is the greatest act of love the world will ever know. You see, God loves his people. And this love is displayed most gloriously in the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. A love so infinite that he was willing to die to reconcile them to himself. And we receive this grace through faith. Earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, we read Paul declaring in verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And before that, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes, And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive him and rest in him alone for our salvation. And notice, receiving is a gift given. We receive the gift of Jesus Christ in his atonement. His atoning work is entirely satisfying to our offended God. And we must flee to him for refuge from God's right and holy wrath against him, against sin. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know this love of Christ personally? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Perhaps there's no greater question that anyone can ever hear. What must we do to be saved? Look to Christ. You see, there's no removal of guilt outside of him. There's many religious and philosophical systems out there, aren't there? Trying to answer the questions of life. But the answer was given in a person. Jesus Christ. He is the Savior who God has sent. There is no other. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or to the Father but by me, he said. 
And Christ's perfect atoning work means that we can turn to him when we sin. And we will find forgiveness. Go to Christ then in your sins, dear ones. Go to him with repentant hearts and faith because his sacrifice is sufficient. Through it, God has reconciled to him all who receive Christ in faith. Well, how do we know it's sufficient? Because in verses 19 and 20, God himself commands ministers to preach this message of hope and salvation in Christ. God has sent for the last 2,000 years and before that in the Old Testament men to preach the gospel. Do not doubt it, dear friends. Yes, you are a real sinner, but your sins are not greater than your Savior Jesus. He is able to wipe them clean in his own blood. In him you will find rest and peace. Isn't that which this world is seeking? Peace? Peace of conscience? Rest? Well, there's one person who can give that, and that is Jesus. And so we see God's gracious reconciling the world in atonement. His people are reconciled in his atonement, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And now we see reconciliation applied through imputed righteousness. We have articulated in our text a most glorious and wonderful atonement made for sin. And yet, how does this benefit us? How does God apply the atoning work of Jesus Christ to his elect people out of the world? throughout time, to save them. Well, the atoning work of Jesus Christ is not all that we find in our text. We read, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, while God imputed the sins of his people to Christ on the cross, he imputes Christ's righteousness to them. And here Christ's righteousness is called the righteousness of God. And it is obtained in him, that is, in union with Jesus Christ. And note the magnitude of this righteousness. It is called the righteousness of God. As Christ is reckoned a sinner, having been made to be sin for us, those who have been reconciled by God are now reckoned to have God's own righteousness. They are viewed as possessing the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And here we see then the beautiful doctrine of justification. We're justified, that is, accepted as righteous in God's sight in Christ. And this is the way God applies the atoning work of Jesus Christ to his people. And once again, we enter the courtroom setting. Jesus Christ has had the sins of his people imputed to him and has been found guilty and paid the penalty for their sins through his atoning death on the cross. And now the judge turns to his people who are filthy in sin and declares that the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to them. And again, this is a legal transaction. In justification, people are declared righteous and are accepted as righteous in God's sight. In the atoning work of Christ, his people's sins are covered. So in justification, they are clothed 
with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and are therefore accepted as righteous in God's sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to them. And like the atoning work of Christ, this is received by faith. You know, brothers and sisters, God didn't have to do this. God is holy, glorious, and eternal, not needing anything from us whatsoever. His glorious justice would have been perfectly satisfied had we all been cast into deserved punishment of hell forever. And yet, here the infinite and mysterious mercy and grace of God is seen in the atoning and justifying work of Jesus Christ. This is indeed grace. What a cause for the eternal praise and thankfulness to our great God. And this is most glorious and most wonderful and has eternal consequences for the recipients of such grace. First, God's people are thereby entirely and perfectly reconciled with God. No longer at enmity with him. No longer the objects of his just wrath. But they are the recipients of his blessings of grace and peace. And secondly, they're the recipients of life. God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ ends with his people being with him in heaven for all eternity. In Christ, they're rendered worthy to be with the Lord. We read in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14, He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. How mysterious and glorious is that? God in Jesus Christ has made a way for you to be reconciled to him and to be able to be with him forever. And notice how the imputation of righteousness, this justification, is an act of God done for individual believers and which continues on in history. We read in our text that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this language is not to be confused with uncertainty. Rather, it's a continuation. The atoning work of Jesus Christ was a one-time finished work on the cross, which was accomplished about 2,000 years ago. No need to re-sacrifice Christ in a mass or any such thing. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it was done, never to occur again. But the application of the imputed righteousness is a gracious work in the New Testament age in which we live, as God continuously calls his people out of the world and justifies them through the preaching of the gospel to be reconciled to him through Christ until the return of the Lord in glory at the last day. And this is why men like Matt Walker and Pastor Ivy and myself and others ought to be called and to preach the gospel. Because the message must continue to go forward until the return of the Lord. And this is the gospel message. Be reconciled to God in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We have declared before us a most glorious and powerful salvation in Christ. And be encouraged then, dear friends to declare the gospel in your words and display the effects of the gospel in your lives and be encouraged in your trials and difficulties 
to stand with joy in the love of God in Christ for you. Never allow, dear friends, your trials to overwhelm you. If your faith is in Christ, never fear. Stand on the rock that is Christ. This world is filled with trials. Rest is coming. Rest in Christ is coming. And notice the order which the reconciling activity of God takes place. Christ's atoning work is first, and the imputation of his righteousness comes after it. And this means that our justification entirely rests on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, a completed work. And what a great source of comfort and assurance for us then. Do not look to yourselves for assurance or right standing before God. We tend to be introspective sometimes. God's word tells us to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12. Do not take your eyes off him, but find all of your strength in his work on the cross for your salvation and your righteousness before God. We live in an individualistic society with the idea that we need to make our own way. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, the author of the Invictus poem says. Well, how false that is. That is not true. In our text, we see we need to be united to Christ in order to have any hope at all. Dear friends, renounce yourself and your own ability. You cannot make yourself right with God. None of us can. Reconciliation is only found in Christ in his atoning death and in his righteousness reckoned to us. At the beginning of this sermon, we heard of some who rejected the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, even my own relative. Those who reject God's plan of reconciliation ultimately reject life. And dear brothers and sisters, we see here atonement and justification in the saving of sinners. We have here God's grace and love displayed in its most glorious form. Dear ones, be encouraged to continue to go to your Savior for forgiveness and strength to be ambassadors for him here in the peninsula and and beyond. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, dear God, our Father, we are amazed at your covenant love for your people, your elect ones throughout history. Oh God, when we look in ourselves, we find unworthiness. We find perhaps even despair, an inability to overcome some things in our life. Oh Lord, help our eyes not to be cast in ourselves, but on our Savior Jesus, who made a suitable and sufficient sacrifice, one that you have accepted and have commanded to be declared throughout the earth. Help us to be encouraged in our walk as Christians. We pray that you will give us great faith and a great love for you and a great thankfulness for all the things you have done. Oh, Lord, please be with us for the remainder of this day and into this week. Encourage us in the Lord, we ask, that you might be glorified in all of our words, our actions, and our thoughts. For Jesus' sake, amen.